0: So we are in this uh, series looking at uh, sacred pathways, ways in which people best connect with God, um, which is to say when they are doing X, whatever that is, it's easier to worship, they feel closer to God, they they would say, I feel like I'm sort of being used by God, or I just feel close. It's not saying that they are closer, but it's subjectively in their experience, ooh, it's easy to worship. I like this. It doesn't feel like a um, obligation to engage with God. And then each week, um, this isn't in your. This looks like the bulletin. This is something that I have up front here. This is an assessment that you can take. It's pretty short, but it lets you assess these nine spiritual pathways to determine what does my unique profile look like. Like how many of these nine would would be on the radar for me. Um, and so if like if I leaned into you know three of these. Um, you know, you might be like a traditionalist and the intellectual, conceptual, and a naturalist. So, okay, I'm, how can I combine those three in a way that's, man, it's really charged worship for me. It's charged connection with God. So you, you can pick those up up front if you want afterwards. Um, we're nearing the end of our series, and um, tonight is the traditionalist pathway. And I, I, you, might, you might not have enjoyed worship tonight. Loved it. I asked Pastor Steve and Sherry completely selfishly, like not even caring what you like. I don't care at all. And I said, this is an excuse to have the kind of traditional, my traditional, and your traditional is probably different. For me, that's my story. <laughs> when I think of being a little boy, when I think of the music my parents played at home on our eight-track player, when I think about the story of my life, that's, what it, that's the soundtrack for it okay if you could do a little Don Francisco next time that would just be perfect In the Imperials but <clears throat> so for me that's man I connect it's so easy to worship <clears throat> and and so we're, we're, we're talking about the traditionalist pathway now you may have something in your mind like oh that means this it might be broader than you think okay there are people who who, who don't experience any of the hymns or things the, the trappings that you might think of as traditional but their pathway is still the traditional pathway, and so we'll kind of see what that means. But if, if you're a part of the traditional pathway, you might say things like, I feel closest to God when I'm participating in, in a form of worship that, that brings back the memories of when I was a kid. Brings back a memory of, of, of when I first connected with God maybe years ago ago and those rituals and those traditions that bring me back almost like in a time machine to that that might be a a latent traditionalist in you if if words like history tradition um, are, are meaningful and 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 meaningful christian symbols uh if that's appealing to you that might be somewhere on your profile here if participating in a form of liturgy that's structured, and reading, and reading in response, maybe those sorts of things. And you identify symbols, maybe that you have hanging in your house, or in your car, or in your workplace, that, that's a symbol, a picture of that rooted faith of yours. Uh, you, The thought of following the Christian calendar, not just Christmas and Easter, you're like, oh, that sounds cool, I totally want to do that, that would be fun. Um, you may be a traditionalist in part of your spiritual pathway so is there biblical precedent number one for this whole concept of traditions being important in religion let me make this larger so you can see it you'd probably like that can you see that so so little larger better Okay, <clears throat> so this is the story. Um, if you remember Israel's history, they have been in bondage for 400 years outside of the promised land, and um, God delivers them. It's the most significant event that shapes the Hebrew mind going forward, and as he's taking them out, in fact, the night before he takes them out, he says, I want you to do something. I, I, I want you to have a rite, a ritual <laughs> that I'm um, inaugurating right now. And of course, we know it is, Passover, and he says in verse twenty-two, take this branch of hyssop, and you're going to dip it in blood, and you're going to put it on the door frames of your home. Then, of course, when when this messenger of destruction of death passes by, he sees that he will pass over your house. And then in verse twenty-four, it says this: You shall observe this rite. That's where Christians get this whole concept of rite or ritual. You will observe this rite as a statute for you. And then look at the next part. And for your sons forever and when you come to the land the promised land remember they're not there that Yahweh will give you as he promised because he promised to Abraham you shall keep this service this ritual this rite. and when your children now here's the function of it why do you keep it because this is going to happen <laughs> when your kids go what do, why do we do this why do we always do this every single year I, don't, I can't remember a time when you know we haven't done this when they ask this question, what do we mean by this service, this ritual? You say to them, it's a sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people, people bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay, Are you seeing the institution of a rite and, and its function has to do with the promulgation of committed service to Yahweh God. It's the way of passing this on, passing it down. Let me go to one other passage here. This is from the book of Joshua, Um, Joshua chapter 4. This is further on in the story. This is now where they're finally going into the land. It's been many (laughs) years, and they still haven't gotten in there. And we read these words, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, Yahweh said to Joshua, remember Moses is gone, Joshua is Moses' successor, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, because there are 12 tribes, and command them, these 12 representatives of the 12 tribes, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, because remember, God miraculously parts the Jordan. So he wants them to grab something from that event, something that was under the water that they didn't have access to. Take 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firm and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And in verse 6, we see um, that this may be a sign among you. It's a symbol. It's something you will see. When you're Children, (laughs) once again, it has to do with that. When your children ask in time, what do these stones mean to you? Dumb, why do we have stones laying around in a big old pile? It's not a wall. It doesn't seem to be functioning for any purpose. What do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them. Well, the waters of the Jordan, they were cut off from before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. There's a perpetual nature to these physical activities, symbols, something, something tangible that you can see that speaks to and points to what you can't see <laughs> in life. Um, how many of you grew up in a church where liturgical practice or, or exercise was, was common? Anyone here? I'm, I'm just curious to know, okay, okay. So a decent, a decent amount, Um, and so um, maybe there were hymns, uh, maybe you recited creeds, uh, maybe there were written prayers uh, that that, that you would read each week. Uh, Maybe the Christian calendar, again, beyond Easter and Advent was practiced. um, Maybe you thought about entire seasons. You didn't think about Christmas, you thought about Advent. (laughs) You didn't think about Easter, you thought about Lent. That might have been your approach. See, my own stories, I, I grew up in a very modern, Pentecostal, charismatic church. In fact, it was a church that even had some influence of, of kind of what's called word of faith theology. It's, I think, a very dangerous theology. But, but essentially, in, in, in this tr- tradition, they emphasized nearly exclusively um, about the supernatural experience in the immediate moment in the now, that you need to have a supernatural experience, this emotional, um, ecstatic experience in the now. And the, the, the implied message, at least to me anyway, the implied message from the church leaders that, that I oftentimes heard was that these, these ancient traditions are, are kind of dry, uh, dusty, um, hollow artifacts that can't serve to give you an experience with god because that's what you're looking for is the emotional experience and so i remember (coughs) thinking i mean if you would have said hey let's write out a prayer you know people would be like "What? right i mean you're you're quenching the spirit if you do that right i i even know some people who would go so far as like if you even write out your sermon ahead of time you're quenching the spirit like just see what happens in the moment let's see what the spirit chooses to do so that was the sort of far opposite side in many ways now looking back now as i think about Some of the sentiments that, I didn't always embrace all those sentiments, some I did, but I would say now looking back, these sentiments expressed really ideas like this, if you do those formal high church things, it's not authentic, heartfelt worship, you're just going through the motions, I would have thought sentiments like this, surely there's no greater spiritual wisdom in the past that we've discarded, Do you feel the arrogance in that? Um, We, in our particular sliver of the Christian denomination, you know, that we are, have finally arrived, knowing the best way to do this worship thing, and so we don't need to learn from other followers either now or in the past. Um, If I I remember my, my first experience with really high church, do you know what I mean by when I say high church? Um, the, it was uh, fall of 1996, I was going back to finish my senior year uh, in college down in Phoenix, and the last minute my mom had said, hey Brent, there's uh, this organization focused on the family down in Colorado Springs, and they've just started this thing up, it's called Institute for Family Studies. It's a semester-long program where you go and you have both an internship in some area, I picked the public policy department, got to work with guys like John Eldridge who was there at the time, and then you you also have coursework that you take, and the coursework, it's, it's, it was higher academic standards than I was used to at that point, but there was this guy named Alan Crippen, Dr. Alan Crippen, and he introduced me to people like Francis Schaeffer, and I'm like, who? And um, Chuck Colson, um, and just all of, all of these high-level things, who were thinking at a higher level than I you know, was in my 18-year-old brain at the time, or whatever I was, 21-year-old brain at the time. But Dr. Alan Griffin said, hey, I would like to invite any of you students, there were only 40 of us, to my church. And he attended an Anglican church. And I'm like, okay, I've been going to my church, you know, my whole life. And it was like culture shock. <clears throat> you know, I go in, I mean, there's pews, it's quiet, there's an organ, just the look, but it's austere. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, but it's just off, it's offsetting. I'm just like... I don't want to make sense of this sort of thing, and sit down in this hard wooden pew, and I'm like, where's the soft chairs? And, you know, there's there's books that we open up to pages and read, and um, and and um, there comes this time for communion, and I see people getting up, and they go down to the front, and they go down, and they kneel along the front, and they just sit, there like, this kind of thing, and so I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I'll go. So I go down to the front, kneel, and then this priest comes by with communion, and he takes it and breaks it, and stick your tongue out. And he puts it on your tongue, and then he has a cup. And we're all drinking out of the same cup. <laughs> and we drink it, and then he wipes it off because that makes it clean, <laughs> and goes the next guy. And, and uh, you know, of course, now I'd be horrified the time. I'm like, mm. um, and it was this, you guys, it was this radical experience that I, but there was something about it. There was something about it that that made me feel and think. I feel connected to, because the thought that Followers of Jesus have have been doing this for like centuries, millennia, and I'm like, I'm tired of singing that chorus from like three years old, let's get a new chorus, you know. There was something that just resonated inside me, and I was like, something about this is beautiful, and I don't even know, I can't put language to it. Something was drawing me, it was appealing to me, and for the very first time, again, I felt these deep roots. And I thought, I want something of here is right. I'm not sure what, <laughs> but something here is right. And the same elements that, that some people have discarded because they viewed it as lifeless, because when they grew up in a church, there wasn't any life possibly. I know that's a very real story. I know a lot of people who would say, it was going through the motions for at least my family or for me. <clears throat> but for a lot of those people where these things were sort of um, foreign and just, going through the motions it began to nourish my soul in 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 ways that it just hadn't quite before and kind of deepen my spiritual life now i didn't stay in that tradition Um, in fact i would say if i did I, i i don't think i could because i would have some points of theological differences points of theological disagreement that i'd say well i probably couldn't embrace all of that but i learned a new appreciation that started it for the traditionalist pathway in my own life. So that's why to this day, if I walk into a cathedral, oh, I could easily worship. It, it, it draws me in because there's a sense of his awe, God's holiness, his grandeur, his bigness. So in your outline, if you want to follow along, there are three main elements that for the traditionalist pathway... Um, are significant and you can see them on there it's ritual symbol and sacrifice those are those are buckets those are categories that for the traditionalist pathway these are important Um, there was a woman some of you might have heard of Evelyn Underhill Evelyn Underhill was a theologian uh, just of this last century here Um, she, she was the very first woman to ever receive university-wide lecture status at Oxford. She was the very first woman to be, to be made a fellow at the University of London. Brilliant, brilliant woman. In, in talking about these um, elements of r- rites, uh, ritual, symbol, sacrifice, this is what she said. It's like a short four- or five-letter sentence, but it's packed. I'll read it twice, but she nailed it. She said, um, these elements are, quote, sensible signs of suprasensible action. You know what a sensible sign is? It's a sign you can sense, <laughs> something physical. It's a sensible sign of a suprasensible. means it's above our senses, action. It's a sensible sign... Of a supra sensible action, something that is taking place in the unseen realm, in the spiritual world, okay, that, that I can't see, I can't sense. So I do something here that I can sense to be like a a a connector, not I'm not I'm not it's not like a median, I don't mean that, but it's it's a way for me to recognize it. I'm recognizing there's action taking place in the unseen realm that I can't see by doing something in the realm that I can. Are you with me with that? It's kind of an abstract thought, but I think it's profound. I think Evelyn Underhill just said it so profoundly. Sensible signs of supra-sensible action. So let's just walk through these. I want to give some examples. I want us to think about them. I want you to think about this is, you know, ultimately, this is about application. It's not just a historical study here. I want you to think about how might I employ these in my own life? And and just be open to how the Spirit might direct you as we go. The first one is ritual. The power of ritual, or remember the word rites? Remember, we read that in uh, Exodus where he said, do this right. The power of ritual, or rites, is basically to reinforce your behavior. How many of you, um, at the, you know, try to start a new habit? <laughs> and you, when you start a new habit, you have to do things that reinforce behavior, right? You don't have direct control to uh, your feelings, and so you reinforce behavior to try to get at your feelings, that makes sense. So Protestants and uh, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox p- might disagree about which rituals, which ones we should do, but all Christians benefit from them. And I'll give you some examples. And I, th- I think this is in your, your outline. Um, celebrations and observances, this is the first kind of example or category under ritual. Now, <clears throat> more familiar to us is like, you know, Easter, uh, Christmas. Easter actually, do you realize that Easter used to be a 40-day celebration in the church? Started at Pentecost and forty days led you to Easter, and moderns—that's too much for us. So we shortened it to forty. You know where we've got um, we've got Monday, Thursday, we've got Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Easter Sunday. And if you're like me, and you grew up. It's like, well, that's too much too. So um, we'll just watch the Ten Commandments on Saturday, and then we'll go to church <coughs> on Sunday morning. Um, Walter. Uh Wangren wrote a book called Reliving the Passion. It's it's a great, and I'll give you some resources as we go. If if any of these areas, you're like, yeah, I kind of want to dig into that. That sounds kind of interesting. Um, Walter Wangren, Reliving the Passion, and he just provides these sort of short meditations based on the Gospel of Mark that takes uh, the reader from Ash Wednesday to the crucifixion and Easter. There's another author by the name of Tricia Rhodes. She wrote a book called Contemplating the Cross. Nancy Guthrie is a name that you might be familiar with. She edited a, a, a marvelous little collection of Easter uh, readings, and it's called Jesus, Keep Me Near the Cross. Um, a second example under this writes is scripture and ritual practices. This could be things like reciting scripture aloud. Oftentimes I find when I'm reading scripture and it's quiet, the words just sort of blend together. I'm not picking up on things. When I read something aloud, sometimes even walking, um, and I'm, I'm I'm punctuating certain words differently and the word stands out to me. and it just So there are different ways of, of reading scripture. Um, use the Psalms. Let me give you one practice that, that I just uh, ran across this week. I'd, I had not known this before. The early Christian church, for instance, one of the early church, uh, church fathers, um, Chrysostom, he's he encouraged every single Christian, I think this is fascinating, in the morning you read Psalm 62 and in the evening you read 140, Psalm 140. And you do that every day of your life. In the morning, you read Psalm 62. In the evening, you read Psalm 140. Let, let me read for you a passage from this author who was encouraging, and he's, he's making up a little imaginary story and says, put yourself in these, this person's shoes, okay? So forgive me, but I'm just going to read it. <coughs> he says this, think of the potential power of doing this, meaning 62 in the morning, 140. Uh, the potential power of doing this faithfully. Imagine being a 12-year-old girl whose mother introduces you to the practice of praying through Psalm 62 in the morning and 140 in the evening. You carry this out faithfully. And Psalm 62 sustains you through the turbulent years of adolescence. Then you read it on your wedding day. Now you're part of a couple. And the words of verse one, truly my soul finds rest in God remind you to base your satisfaction on God first and foremost. And you keep reading Psalm 62 first thing every day, which is why you read it on the first day you bring your child home after they're born. No doubt you take comfort in verses 11 and 12, reminding you that God is strong and that He's loving. Those verses sustain you through the the tired years of child-rearing, Then on the day your last child leaves the home, and it's back to just you and your husband, you're moved by verse 9, reminding you that humans are only a breath. How true. Life has gone so quickly. You keep reading that psalm, now perhaps as a grandmother, and so you pick up that familiar passage on the morning that you bury your husband, and verse 2 comes to your mind. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And that speaks to you like never before because it's back to you and God, just like when you were a little 12-year-old girl who started reading Psalm 62 and Psalm 140 for the first time. These psalms have literally been the bookends of your entire adult life. Isn't that beautiful? I I cried when I first read that. I was like, "That's that's beautiful. Now, if you think about, oh my gosh, reading those two every day, it's so boring. Okay, you're probably not the traditionalist. That's cool. But if that resonates with you, man, if that says like, oh, I would, I would love for that to hold my, the story of my life together, there may be that latent traditionalist pathway in your life. See, rituals can tie your years together. Rituals tie your years together with a common thread of faith. I know one story of a guy who he, um, every single, because he he values, he doesn't do this, but he he reads something else every single morning. He takes his Bible and he puts it on top of his shoes every night (laughs) so that before he can put them on in the morning, oh yeah, (laughs) that's his ritual. Oh yeah, I've got to come back to this. I've got to have that tag every single day in my life. Number three, the third one, the Christian calendar. When we ritualize historic events in the church even in our own lives not just Christmas and Easter but you know Pentecost Advent Lent Ascension Day here's what we're affirming when we do that we're affirming that our spiritual worship it's historically based it's based in history in time and in space history and even even more contemporaries here's here's something that i would encourage urge you to. I, I i've done this a few and i'm actually going to be doing this a little bit more just because i came across this idea is find people who have been significant in your spiritual growth maybe it's dietrich bonhoeffer as an author maybe you've read his books and said man that's a guy who kind of shaped my faith at a critical point in my life, okay, well, how about, how about if you remember April 9th, 1945, to remember when he was imprisoned and executed for a plot against Hitler, and every, every year on that day, it's, a, it's, it's just in your calendar, and, and you're, you're reminded, oh, of the courage of one who would follow Jesus to that extent, who would sacrifice his life, you're reminding yourself, of, C.S. Lewis, the guy I mentioned, November 22nd, 1963, I, it's in my calendar. Every single year I think about it because I think it's a guy who influenced my faith. So I'm marking my year by significant critical moments that spoke to my heart, that spoke to my faith in some way. Um, there's, there's an author by the name of Robert Morgan. I think I gave you this suggested reading of his. He's got a book called On This Day, 365 amazing and inspiring stories about saints, martyrs, heroes maybe maybe pick up a book like this and you go i'm going to read and if there's anyone that really catches me like that's what i want okay maybe that's the date then maybe it's his birth or his death or her whatever it might be but then that becomes a day that becomes a part of your calendar every single year that's pursuing this traditionalist pathway uh, fourth example there a rule of prayer Rules of prayer, unless you grew up in a real, like, you're probably like, what are you talking about? Um, it, this is a very structured and formalized way of praying where you have sections, you have an invocation, and you have some words provided for you. You're invoking God's name, saying, God, I, I want you here, I want your presence. There's, there's a prayer of petition, and, and, and you pray those typed out words, and there's a whole, and I would really encourage you, develop your own rule of prayer. Which is to say, what you do is you go um, get maybe uh, an Episcopalian prayer book, Eastern Orthodox prayer book, and you start cutting and pasting. And you, oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. I like. Th-. And you make a rule, your own outline, and you. St- and if you really want to do it, create seven of them, seven different ones, just on a piece of paper. This is Mondays. This is Tuesdays. This is Wednesdays. And each week it gives you structure for your prayer. And if your mind wanders in prayer, it's a great thing to do. It's really, really helpful to do. Scheduled prayer, the next one. The, um, the Didache. The Didache is the earliest Christian document we have kind of post-Bible. That, that's sort of a, a formal uh, piece of literature that the church used to, um, to disciple new believers, to teach new believers. And um, in the Didache, <coughs> we're, we're instructed, we're told that, okay, new believers, you want to know what to do? three times a day on the third hour, sixth hour, and ninth hour. That'll get you started. <laughs> That's this ancient early wisdom. And again, it doesn't have to be the third hour, the sixth hour, ninth hour. Pick a rhythm that works for you. And I would even say this too. Oftentimes, if you spend, you know, I'm gonna sp- you might be a prayer warrior, I'm gonna spend 30 minutes in prayer right in the morning. It's, it, it's amazing how easily by lunch you've completely forgotten about the presence of God. <laughs> what I find more helpful is shorter, more frequent times of prayer, like three minutes here, three minutes at noon, three minutes at three o'clock. That's doable. <laughs> and it gets me in the habit. The Remember, because this is about behavior in your life. So these scheduled prayers, I think, can be really helpful. Okay, next category, next bucket is symbol. <clears throat> What's the point of symbol? Because you have a poor memory And so do i (laughs) that's the point largely of symbols because we have distracted memories all of us let me read for you a passage um that's tiny here we go um numbers chapter 15 uh, then yahweh said to moses yahweh is giving instructions about how he wants the people to to do life to do to do life in the presence of God. I said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout all generations and to put just a little cord of blue in that tassel of each corner. Why is that? Well, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and, you got bad memories, remember all the commandments of Yahweh and to do them and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which are inclined to whore after. So, you shall, so shall you remember and do all the commandments and be holy to God? He's giving them something that he's saying, I, th- this will, you won't even think about it, but your eyes will fall on it. And you'll go, oh yeah. You know, like we do something. This is something I brought tonight. We do baptisms. Do you know what we give to the, our people who get baptized? We give them a baptism shirt. And it's got on their dead buried raised and then kind of in this sort of cryptic fashion baptism spelled out with some key verses that we talk about in the class. Why do I give them this? Because when they reach into the laundry to get their laundry out and they're kind of having, and they go, oh yeah, oh yeah, (laughs) I forgot I've devoted my life to following Christ Symbols are powerful. You need them because your memory is not good, because you are distracted, and it's the same with me. And so we need to implement symbols in our own lives. A symbol can be found to meet virtually any situation. You drive on the road, and you have a temper, and you have a tendency. Don't put a fish in the back of your car. That will not help you. Put something on your your rearview mirror. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's maybe it's the ichthus, I don't know. Um, Do you have sexual temptation? Wear something that you see constantly. There is a symbol for anything, and you and God just need to come up with it and figure out, what should it be, God? What do you want me to pick to help me remember that I'm faithful to you and that you, more importantly, are faithful to me? And throughout history, People have done this, you, you've seen the fish, the ichthus in there, because it stands for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. It's the first letter of those words. Um, or you think of, you might have seen the Cairo, it looks like an X and kind of like a P in it. That's, those are the first two Greek letters in, in the name Christos, or Christ. And so people put that up, maybe it's an image, it's, it's somewhere that, and sometimes it's, it's cryptic. That's kind of why I did this on the T-shirts, is you have to kind of, it, it's not obvious. It's something that's kind of, but but to the wearer, it's very obvious. Christian art has leveraged symbolism for years. Here are just some examples throughout church history. It's an anchor. Ever seen a sign of an anchor? This was an ancient. You, you, you can find this in the catacombs in Rome. Why is that? Because it's a sign of hope. It's the last hope of sailors, and so that's an image that they grabbed onto. An arrow. An arrow is a symbol of martyrdom, of pain, of suffering. Um, a banner, symbol of a banner because it's triumph over persecution and death that reminded the early followers of Jesus. A circle, a circle because it's a picture of eternity, never ending, reminds them of their hope. A lamp, a lamp is a picture of wisdom because it provides light of piety. A palm branch, a palm branch is a picture of martyrdom. A square was used. Square is a picture of our, our earthly existence, that, that it's, it's limited to a certain section. I only have so many days. And early Christians act, even used color for, for symbol. You see up on the cross back here, we have, uh, we have a piece of material draped on it. If you go to a liturgical church, depending on what week, it's a different color on there. Um, white was used on Easter and Christmas, it's a color of joy, so you'll see a white cloth hanging on that. Red spoke of the exaltation of cross, the feasts of the martyrs, and the Lord's passion. So depending on what Sunday you come to that church, because there's always a meaning. There's always something about that Sunday. It, it's, it's a symbol or pointing to something. Green symbolized just the most common Sundays, sort of the ordinary ones, as well as serving as a symbol for life because plants and vegetables, they're, they're green and they grow. Purple was reserved for, for Lent, Holy Week, Advent. It spoke of the union of love and pain. And black was reserved for Good Friday. Only day, only... Only day of the year that you put black on the cross is Good Friday, remembering the death of our Lord. So I would encourage you try incorporating just one of these three. Just pick one that sounds most intriguing to you. <laughs> and, and, and just give it a try. Try something, but do it with God. Say, God, I want to I I uh, do this as an experiment with you, <laughs> not by myself, and then come to you with you and do this. Now, one thing that we've done each uh, week in this series is say, if this is your spiritual pathway, especially if it's like high on your spiritual pathway, there are gonna be temptations. There are going to be uh, ways that you're going to potentially uh, fail um, in, in one of these areas because it's so strong in you. Does that make sense? And so I wanna just kind of talk over a couple of those and very, very quickly. The first one is serving God without knowing God. I I think I've told this story before, but I'll I'll tell it again because it it, it illustrates this uh, reality well. When I was looking at going to um, different seminaries, when I was toward the end of my college career, (coughs) and um, was looking at different ones, and I remember going down to Dallas, Dallas Theological Seminary, where um, Chuck, Chuck Chuck Swindoll was the uh, president at the time, and so did kind of an introduction, okay, students, and had a meal, and and he's talking to us, and I remember he said something that I didn't understand fully at the time, but he said, those of you who are planning, many seminarians are planning to go into church life, and he said, the most dangerous, the the, the most spiritually dangerous place for you to work is in the church. The most spiritually dangerous place, I remember thinking, like, is this guy trying to, get rid of this, you know, the school or something? You know, what's he doing? And he said, because the danger is you're going to be busy with the activities of serving God, so busy that you'll start to feel like, well, I must know God real well. I must, this is my my devotional life, right? And he says, you can substitute that really easily, and it's super dangerous. And I would say the same thing is true for Religious activity, religious action. If I do the shape of the cross, if I kneel, if I celebrate these festivals, I I might delude myself into thinking, I'm close with Jesus. (laughs) And so there is, I think, a real danger there for that religion can serve faith, it can never substitute. And by religion, I mean tradition, your activities, religious activities. It can serve your faith, but be careful, it never substitutes it. Um, Second danger is neglecting uh, what you could maybe say, uh, social obligations to others. Um, traditionalists can get so caught up in faith. This is true of activists, too. remember the week we talked about act, the activist pathway? They can be so busy being active, you know, voting for this and doing that, that they're not actually noticing the needs of, oh, this person needs something. You know, The caregiver is going to notice them. But the activists and the traditionalists might think, I'm serving God, and so I, they just sort of forget that. If you've ever read the book of Amos, God is railing on his people for this very thing right here. In the book of Amos, you know, he says things like, I hate and despise your religious festivals. This is Amos 121. Your assemblies are, your, yeah, Your assemblies are a stench in my nose. And he goes on to say, it's because you're doing all this religious activity, but you're neglecting someone who's in need who's right next to you, because this has substituted for that. Number three, third danger, (coughs) is judging others. We have to remember that God, not religion, is sacred. Let me read, um, see if I can pull it up real fast here. Yeah, (coughs) Colossians 2.16, Paul says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, this has to do with ritual, tradition, with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a um, or Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Um, we have to be careful not to move into a place where we start to almost think the things that I'm doing, uh, everyone really should be doing if they want to serve God. If they really love God, they'll go you know, to this service and that service, and they'll celebrate it this way. <laughs> it's, it's, it's projecting my internal desires onto you as an obligation, and that's, that's a danger. Number uh, four, deifying your traditions, deifying these rites or these rituals. <clears throat> Do you remember the story? Numbers chapter 21, Israel is going through the desert. Their, their, their faithfulness to God is just horrible, and uh, all of these um, snakes come into the camp, and they bite them, and the people are getting sick, and they're dying. Do you remember what God tells Moses to do? He says, build this um, snake, this statue, on a pole. You've seen it on the back of an ambulance, probably. Put it on, build on this pole, and set it in the center of the camp. And if they look to that, that's in recognition that they're obeying me finally, because they keep disobeying me, and I will heal them of that problem. Well, you go forward in time, and in... um, 2 Kings 18, fast forward, people are worshiping this snake thing. They're literally viewing it as a divine entity. It's, it's, it's supernatural. Um, they've, they've moved from genuine, it, it's the same thing. It hasn't changed. It didn't change. But their understanding of, is it just a thing that God used, or is it somehow extra special? has almost a layer of divinity on it. And that's when I think we can, anytime we start to view, if you view anything you do, I don't care if it's the shape of the cross, as magical, if it's even getting close to that, stop doing it. Anything. If there's anything you're doing that's that's becoming a superstition, that's dangerous and deadly, and stay far away from it, because the enemy will use that to pry a distance between you and God. You'll start relying on your magical activities and behavior more than on God's faithfulness. It has to do with me being able to jump through these hoops and do these things in order to stay safe. Oh, that's the, that's the enemy, <laughs> okay? So any good thing can be turned bad. We know that. So all of these different pathways, they, they create um, this, this sort of <clears throat> traditionalist experience. <clears throat> this week, um, I would encourage you to, to pursue this. And maybe think about it like... Um, Every year, try to add one more of these buckets. Maybe this year you say, I'm going to think about symbols. With God, I'm going to try to find some symbols. Remember, they're not magical, but that reminds me of something that he's done in my life, maybe a period of time, something that happened, something um, I'm wanting to pursue. <coughs> maybe, maybe you're going to pursue one of the, and then, and then maybe the next year just try a different one, add a different one. And this will allow you to kind of lean into and pursue the traditionalist Pathway because there's so much richness, this is why God told Israel, "I want you to do this, pile up those stones, do this in your home it's It's littered all over your life, literate with ritual, literate with symbols, literate with these rites, literate with these ceremonies, so far as they point you and they draw you back to God, they draw your heart to God, and I think it can powerfully help you remember, keep you from becoming distracted, and keep you connected a little bit closer to God. And in fact, I want to do one right now. Can we do one? <laughs> we're going to take some, what was what were, Evelyn Underhill's language? The, uh, yeah, she, the, the, the uh, sensible things, and we're going to do something because we're, we're thinking about or knowing about something going on in the supernatural realm the supernatural realm this reality that jesus sits enthroned because of his death on the cross and at that moment just prior to his death he took his closest followers and he took sensible things things they could touch and taste and smell and feel and he says i want you to take these elements every time you do them and break this bread and remember that my body was broken for you and I want you to take this cup, and I want you to drink it. And I remember that my blood was shed for you, and that's what allows you to stand with me and my Father. That's why I can introduce you to my Father. <laughs> and so we do that every single week. So during, um, during this next song, here, here's, here's what I would ask you to do, is go to the different tables. Can we do this? If we do it real quickly, grab the elements. C- c- don't take them on your Come back. Let's take them together. And then I want us to finish out by singing... Mm-hmm. The old rugged cross. All right, if you have the elements, would you would you mind standing? <clears throat> we take the wafer. <clears throat> and Jesus says, I want you to take and break and consume. Let's do that now. Christ's body. In the exact same way, after the meal, he took the cup, saying it's his blood of a new covenant opening a way for us to the Father. Every time you drink it, you proclaim my death until I come again. Let's take the cup. Now would you engage in worship of our God as we sing? Wow, I don't know about you, but that nurtured my soul tonight so, hey, my prayer for you this week is that you will continue leaning into and exploring these different pathways. Do it again, not on your own. Ask the Holy Spirit to do it with you. Amen? Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being Timberline. We'll see you next week.